Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and honor and glory and praise. Church, let us unite our voices and fill our homes with praise for our risen King. Crown him. Crown him with many crowns. The Lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Away my soul and sing of him who died for thee. I'm matchless king through all eternity. He is the life. Crown him the Lord of life, who triumphed o'er the grave and rose victorious in the strife for those he to save his glories now we sing we sing who died and rose on high who died eternal life to bring and lives that death may die crown him the Lord Yet visible above in beauty glorified. No angel in the sky can fully bear that sight. But down where fence is burning eye at mystery so your voice crown him crown him the lord of heaven one with the father known one with the spirit through him given from yonder glorious throne to thee be endless praise for thou for us hast died be thou O lord through endless days adored and magnified be thou be thou O lord through endless days adored and magnified. Amen. Well, hello and happy Easter. My name is Chase Jacobs. I'm the minister of theological training at Desert Springs Church, and he is risen. 
And if we were all together, I would hear you all saying back to me, he is risen indeed, which is the traditional Easter greeting as we celebrate this hope that we have in Christ's death for us on our behalf on the cross and Christ's glorious resurrection that he is risen indeed. Church family, I hope that this message greets you, uh, having a happy Easter morning, comforted by the hope that we have in Christ. And if you're here and you're watching uh, this video and you are not uh, a member of our church, maybe you're not even a Christian, let me just say we are so happy that you have decided to spend this time meditating with us on the hope that we have in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I want to just tell you that our church is available for you for whatever you need. If uh, there is any way that, you, that we can help you, I'd encourage you to go to our website, dscabq.com, and there you can find out ways to contact us. We'd be happy to answer any questions that you have, try and meet any material needs that you may have, pray for you, help you get connected in one of our community groups, or any other ways that we can be of service to you. Please, please take advantage of that as we uh, all fellowship together in this resurrection community in Jesus Christ. With that being said, let me say a prayer for our time together, and we will continue to worship God uh, for all that he has done for us in Christ. Please pray. Lord, we do sing your glories. You sent your son who died for us the death that we deserve to die because of our sins against you and our trespasses, Lord, but that Jesus did not stay dead he conquered death. You, you raised him from the dead, and now he does sit on high. Him who died eternal life to bring and who lives now that death may die. God, especially in this time, we pray that you would be near to us by your Holy Spirit through your word to comfort us with that hope. Lord, I pray that we would find our satisfaction not in our circumstances, but in the promise that we have in the gospel, that death has been defeated once and for all, and that we who have put our faith in Jesus have eternal life. We will live with you forever. And it's in that hope that we turn now and we praise you for it in Jesus' name, amen. Now to begin, let's hear this from John chapter 20. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. In stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth with which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Believers, let us again join our alleluias for Christ has risen.
Christ the Lord is risen today. Alleluia. Sons of man and angels say, Alleluia. Raise your joys and triumphs high. Alleluia. Sing ye heaven and earth reply. Second, our glorious King, Alleluia. Where, O oh, death, is now thy sting, Alleluia. Dying once, he all doth say, Alleluia. Where thy victory. Following our exalted head, Alleluia. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. 
Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. That same Christ who ascended will descend again, and this time in glory and judgment. And we will all say that we have seen the Lord. with clouds descending once for favored sinners slain thousand thousand saints attending hail the king who comes again first day of the week. The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Thank you. 
This is a new song for us that is based on the first question from the Heidelberg Catechism. The question reads, what is our only hope or comfort in life and death? This song will help us to sing the answer and to confess together that Christ is our only hope in life and death. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence? That our souls to Him belong. Who holds our days within His hand? What comes apart from His command? And what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. Let's sing that again. What is our hope? What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence? That our souls to Him belong Who holds our days within His hand What comes apart from His command And what will keep us to the end The love of Christ in which we stand Sing hallelujah And oh sing troubled soul God is good God is good where is his grace and goodness known in our great redeemer's blood who holds our faith when fears arise who stands above the stormy trial who sends the way that bring us nigh unto the shore, the rock of Christ. Oh, sing, and oh, sing, hallelujah, our hope springs eternal. shall we sing? Sing it. Christ, He lives. Christ, He lives. And what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with Him. There we will rise. 
to me the Lord, then sin and death will be destroyed, and we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forever. Yes, Lord Jesus, we happily sing hallelujah, praise the Lord, and happily confess that you alone are our only true comfort in life and in death and into eternal life. So we meet together in your name, not physically, but in spirit, and we, Lord, meet with you, the living God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are near to the brokenhearted. You are with us to the end. And we thank you for your word and for your promises. We thank you for the gospel on which we stand. And as we look into your word this morning, Lord, we pray you'd give us eyes to see. We pray you'd give us understanding. We pray, Lord, we would be quick to listen and not only be hearers of the word, but doers also. May we believe and believe afresh in our Savior as we behold him in the pages of Scripture this morning. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, good morning and happy Resurrection Sunday. My name is Ryan Kelly. I'm the preaching pastor here. And uh, let me do my part to welcome you to this viewing, this worship service online. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me to John chapter 20. Chase has been reading for us through John chapter 20, and we'll move on in the passage a little bit further. But first, let me set this up a bit. Over the last month or so, most of us have, well, many times over, wondered what to believe and what not to believe. Of course, that's always the case to one degree or another. But in these recent weeks of COVID-19, it's certainly been elevated. Do we believe that report that just came out or the one before it? Do we believe this advice on mitigation or some other? Do we believe this model of prognostication or a different one? We wonder, does that person coughing in the grocery store have coronavirus? Or wait, I just coughed, and come to think of it, I'm feeling a little peaked this morning. Perhaps I have coronavirus. What do we believe? What do we not believe? How do we know what we should believe? 
On the one hand, there are those of us who tend to be more cynical. Uh, We are more prone to deny things in general. Perhaps it's simply because we tend toward negativity or suspicion. On the other hand, there are those of us who are more prone to what we call credulity, believing this or that and embracing it, well, almost whimsically, perhaps for the sole reason of staying positive uh, like so many talk about these days. Now, my point is not to try to get you to adopt a certain outlook on COVID-19 or for you to embrace a certain prediction of how the next weeks or months will go, but instead to turn your attention to a different matter of belief and unbelief, a matter that I desperately want you to believe and not disbelieve. It's a matter that stretches back almost 2,000 years ago and will be relevant a 1,000 years from now. It's a matter of infinitely greater importance than the next headline. It's infinitely greater importance than COVID-19 as a whole, even if you lose a loved one from this virus, even if you die in this virus. I don't minimize death or illness in any way, shape, or form, but there is something of greater importance. And so if you're turning, tuning into this on an Easter Sunday morning, well, you know what I'm getting at. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And today I want to turn our attention to the next portion in John chapter 20, beyond what Chase has already read for us. If we read on, we'll find one of Jesus' closest disciples, an apostle, struggling to believe that Jesus really was risen from the dead. You've probably heard of this man. He's got an infamous nickname, Doubting Thomas. But by the end of this brief story, we'll see that he is doubting no more. He's believing Thomas. And we can all learn from him and this story of unbelief turned to belief It's a story that's especially important for those who don't yet believe in Jesus savingly, but it's also relevant for Christians in their ongoing walk of faith with Jesus. For we all continue to say, like some other man in the gospel accounts, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. This passage will help us fight our ongoing unbelief. Let me read it for us. John 20, starting in verse 19. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, the disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it 
in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. But let me offer two introductory comments before we get to an outline of the passage. Let's consider the purpose of John's gospel first. It's stated there in verse 30 and 31. I'll read it again. Jesus did many other signs or miracles in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book we call John, but these things, these miracles, these events are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's quite handy when an author tells us exactly why he's writing or she's writing. It's handy when they, they state either up front or at the end, it matters not, what they hope to accomplish and what we should do with what they've written. John writes history here. Not made up stories, history. He writes as an eyewitness to the events recorded in his gospel account. It says, it was in the presence of the disciples. And he writes to persuade his readers, these things are written so that you may believe what's in there. Now, history writing these days doesn't really seek to persuade much. I know, I, I, I did a PhD in history. Most history writing today doesn't seek to argue so much. It's, it's supposed to be objective. It's an objective presentation of old events and people and ideas. But it's not supposed to be preachy. Well, John, the apostle, apparently didn't get that memo. And neither did anyone in the ancient world. And so John is simultaneously an eyewitness, a reporter, and a preacher. He writes firsthand eyewitness history. He writes so that you will take it as history, as fact, as true. And he wants you to believe it. He wants you to really believe it. He wants you to be changed by what you've come to believe. And why shouldn't he want you to believe and be changed by it if these things he writes are true? So that's the purpose of John's gospel account. But also consider with me as an introductory point the place of the Thomas account. The place of it. Now we've already learned from the purpose statement at the end that what John wrote down was indeed selective. He didn't tell us everything that he could have told us. And so it's right for us to ask at any one point in his account, why did John include this scene? How does this specific story contribute to his purpose statement? And why does he give us more details here than, say, some other account? 
Chase already read for us this visit Jesus made to the disciples in a locked room when Thomas wasn't there. And there it's told rather briefly. The Thomas account is spread out a little bit more. And here is where most biblical scholars would suggest that the Thomas story is really the climactic moment in John's gospel account. And if you say, well, yeah, but this is John 20. I'm looking down at my Bible and I see there's still John 21 to come. True. But if you read chapter 21, you'll see it's really wrapping up some loose ends. So scholars call chapter 21 an epilogue and suggest that Thomas's conversion in our passage is really the climactic moment of everything that came before because Thomas is the last of the apostles to believe in Jesus fully. His unbelief before that is severe and problematic. And his confession of Christ, which comes in verse 28, is the fullest and most profound of any confessions of Christ that we find in the gospel accounts. And this conversion and confession that we find in the story of Thomas, coming right before the purpose statement, remember, John wants us to believe these things. Well, here's a man who did, and John wants us all to do what Thomas did. So it deserves our careful attention. As I said, we've all heard it called Doubting Thomas. That's the nickname that has stuck. And as I said already, that's not where it ends, but it is indeed where it begins. So first, the first of four headings, if you're a note taker, Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas. That's what we see up front. Again, let's remember that there was a previous appearance without Thomas there, which Chase read for us. It's stated explicitly, verse 24, Thomas was not with them when Jesus came. And then yet, verse 25, the other disciples told Thomas, We have seen the Lord. In fact, in the Greek, literally, it's the other disciples kept telling him, we have seen the Lord. So put yourself in Thomas's shoes. It's a pretty spectacular thing to hear, that the one whom you saw crucified is alive. But he wasn't hearing it from a stranger. He wasn't hearing it from wackos. He's hearing it from his closest friends, his mates, the other apostles whom he spent life with over three years. And they're all saying the same thing, all because they've all seen the same thing. And they keep telling you. What would you do with that testimony? Would it be enough? Sadly, it wasn't enough for Thomas. Verse 25, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now this is a serious kind of doubt. This is pretty stubborn. To be fair, not all doubt is malicious. Every Christian 
doubted before they believed. And some people really are genuinely seeking, we could say. They have genuine questions. They're looking for answers. There are things they don't yet understand and they actually want to. And there's also a kind of doubt as part of the Christian life where we wrestle, that we want more faith, we want to believe. That kind of doubt isn't malicious, but there is a kind of doubt, especially before we're saved, before we become a Christian, that's stubborn and malicious. You see, some skeptics want to set up their own tests for God, their own hoops for God to jump through. They demand evidence on their own terms. And really, they're often looking for reasons to not believe. And Thomas would appear to be in that latter category. He not only needs to see like his friends got to see, but he, he demands to touch, to poke, to prod the wounds. And unless he gets that, he says he will never believe. And this is one of the 12 apostles, handpicked by Jesus himself. And he doesn't believe it. He's heard Jesus talk about it in a variety of ways. He doesn't believe it. Now, the skeptics of the Bible, skeptics of Christianity, will often say that the story of Jesus, especially his resurrection, it's fanciful, it's well-wishing, it's storytelling written by Jesus' associates and friends who couldn't properly deal with his death and defeat. But the problem with that proposal is that there are just too many details in the story that wouldn't be there, that wouldn't be told that way if someone were making it up. So one example was earlier in John 20. Who was it that was the first witness to the stone rolled away? Who was it that was the first witness of the bodily raised Jesus? It was a woman named Mary Magdalene. And she was not only a woman, which wouldn't be a problem in our culture today, but was in first century Jewish culture. But she was not only a woman, she had formerly been demon-possessed. Not exactly a trustworthy eyewitness, if you're making it up. And another important example is Thomas's unbelief. This severe and stubborn unbelief in one of the twelve. So ironically, Thomas's doubt should lead a skeptic to Christianity to begin to doubt their doubts about Jesus' resurrection. And then move on from doubting that doubt, move on to what comes next in the story where Jesus shows up. So now, secondly, we have confronted Thomas in verses 26 and 27. Confronted Thomas. It's difficult to put a single word over those verses, 26 and 27. I'm suggesting the word confronted, but it's a little more nuanced than that. It is a confrontation, it is, but it is a gentle confrontation, especially at first. 
It doesn't exactly start as a confrontation. Jesus simply appears among the disciples just as he did before. Now, as an aside, we should think about the timing of these events. Verse 19 says that that appearance happened on the first day of the week. That's Sunday. And then verse 26, the second appearance is eight days later. What's the significance of that? Well, in our way of putting it, we'd say one week later. In the Jewish reckoning and verbiage, they counted the first day and the last day when they were speaking of a span of time. So Sunday to Sunday, one way of counting that is eight days. We, we don't speak that way. We say seven days later or one week later. But that's what John is saying using this Jewish idiom. This is the eighth day. This is, again, Sunday. What would later come to be known in the Christian tradition as the Lord's Day? Here we have just a hint. It was on that day that the disciples were once again gathering and once again that Jesus met with them. Now, timing aside, as I said, Jesus appears among the disciples just as he did before. He comes out of nowhere. He appears in a locked room. He speaks the same greeting, peace be with you. And here's where that gentle confrontation begins when Jesus speaks directly to Thomas. Put your finger here. See, see my hands? Put out your hand and place it in my side. Now I think there are multiple layers to what's going on here. On one level, Jesus is kindly condescending to meet Thomas in his unbelief. Astonishingly, Jesus is actually offering to Thomas the very conditions that Thomas placed on his believing. And God doesn't always do that. Often he rebukes those who demand a sign. But on another level, notice that Jesus is quoting almost word for word what Thomas had said to the disciples back in verse 25 when Jesus wasn't around. How did Jesus know what Thomas said in his protest and demands? I mean, was Jesus making other appearances during that week and word got to Jesus? You know what Thomas said about you? No, probably not. No, Jesus knows what was said when he wasn't there bodily. And on that level, then, what he says to Thomas is less of an invitation and more of a confrontation. That becomes clearer in what Jesus says next. Just bluntly, verse 27, do not disbelieve, but believe. Here's a call, a command to believe even before touching. Here's a call for Thomas to abandon his disbelief, to turn from it towards belief. He had been unbelieving, disbelieving. And disbelieving what specifically? Well, he was disbelieving what his friends, the apostles, had told him about what they had seen. What they told him and kept telling him, well, it frankly should have been enough. 
And Jesus will make that point explicitly in just a bit, and John will make the same point again in his purpose statement. So we have doubting Thomas, which leads to confronted Thomas, and by God's grace, that leads thirdly to believing Thomas. Verse 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. So most likely, Thomas didn't actually touch the wounds. There's no record of it. To to think that he did is to read into it. There was no need for him to. The evidence is piling up. The the apostles' testimony. And then Jesus, now a second time, appearing. Thomas seeing Jesus with his own eyes. Him recognizing Jesus as the same Jesus, but now risen. Jesus telling Thomas that he knows what he said. Jesus kindly and gently rebuking Thomas. And Jesus' blunt call to stop disbelieving and believe. That was it. That's enough. Thomas happily folds in worship. My Lord and my God. Here we have the loftiest confession of Jesus from anyone in all of John's gospel. In fact, it's the highest confession of Jesus from anyone in all the gospels. You think of how the gospel of Mark works, where it culminates with the confession of the centurion at the cross Surely this was the Son of God. Great moment. Perfect for Mark. And here Thomas says much more. My Lord and my God. And not only do those words, Lord and God, each of them by themselves convey lordship and authority and glory and deity. But those words often are bound together as sort of dual names or titles for God. Like in these psalms, listen, Psalm 30, verse 2. O Lord my God, I cry to you for help. Psalm 30, verse 12. O Lord my God, I give thanks to you forever. Psalm 31, verse 14. I trust in you, O Lord, I say you are my God. Psalm 35, awake and arouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God. And one more, Psalm 38, verse 15, but for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. That's what Thomas is referring to. That kind of lofty designation for God and God alone. And any suggestion which tries to make Thomas's confession of Jesus with Jesus being something less than God ends up being laughable. Like one suggestion that Thomas here was so shocked he apparently used profanity, taking the Lord's name in vain right in front of Jesus. I don't think so. Or another suggestion is that 
The first half of the equation is directed to Jesus, my Lord, but the other half is directed heavenward to God, not Jesus. No, Thomas knows exactly what he's doing, taking those double-name titles that so often hold hands in the Psalms as a rich, full expression of deity, and he's placing them upon Jesus, my Lord and my God. And notice that Jesus doesn't deflect or redirect his praise, as we sometimes see angels do when they show up to a human being, and in their splendor and majesty, that human being bows before them. And the angel quickly says, get up, what are you doing? I'm a created being just like you. Don't do this. Worship God. No, Jesus doesn't do that. He rightly receives divine worship here and many other places. He's the God-man. He's fully God, and he's fully man. He had to be man, or else you don't die. He had to be God, because he lives forevermore. As we sing at Christmas time, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate in the flesh deity. That's what John told us right from the start of his gospel account. In the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus. And the Word was with God, somehow distinguishable from God. Yes, there's a Father, there's a Son in the Godhead. But the Word was God says John. John has been telling us just this all the way through. Well, really, Jesus has been teaching us and showing us this, and John's been recording it for us. From the miracles, which were not something slightly better than magic tricks, they were signs of his divine intervention over the curse, to those I am statements, which if you were part of Desert Springs in December and January, not, not long ago, you remember we went through those I am statements in John where Jesus is taking on that divine name from Exodus 3 where God revealed himself to Moses as the I am, Yahweh, I am who I am. Jesus deliberately takes that on. And now Thomas gets it. As we said last week, it, it clicks. For him, the penny drops. He gets it all. He now sees Jesus before him, not as some resuscitated man, but God in the flesh, my Lord and my God. And notice how personal that is. Not the Lord and the God, but my Lord and my God. In many ways, this is what it means to become a Christian. This is sort of how it goes down. To become a Christian, you must lay down your tests for God, your hoops for him to jump through, your demands, your ifs or conditions before belief. You must lay those down. To become a Christian, you must see his wounds. You must look at his wounds. It's fascinating that Christ with a new and renewed, glorified body, still has scars. 
I don't know if all my scars will translate into a new body. I suspect they won't. And his remained for us, for Thomas. We must, we must look at his wounds. We must know what those wounds were for. Isaiah 53 puts it so powerfully. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. He paid our price. Those wounds mean he took what we deserve because of our sins. He took on our pain to give us his joy. He took on our guilt to give us freedom. You have to see his wounds. You have to believe that he really died and really raised. And you have to confess it. Confess it to him. Romans 10, Paul puts it there like this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified or declared righteous. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It has to be your confession. You don't have to use Thomas's words. One man in Luke 19 simply beat on his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And he was justified. You don't have to word it just like him or just like Thomas. But it must be along those lines. It must be a confession of who Jesus is and that you want Jesus for yourself. It has to be personal. Which I can just say to kids, I guess. Kids of Christian parents, whatever your age. This has got to be your own. You've got to reckon with Jesus. You must lay down your tests. For belief, you must look at his wounds and know what they mean. And you must confess to Jesus that he's yours and that he's the Lord and Savior and God. And don't believe because you've seen him. You can't. Certainly don't think you'll believe if you only get to poke at his wounds. Believe because you've been told. Believe because those who once did literally see, they wrote it down. So now fourthly, we move from Thomas to anyone else who wants in on this. Blessed believers. Jesus said to Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now to clarify something here. Thomas actually did need to see the risen Jesus as an apostle. It's in Acts 1, 22, 
that we learned that one of the necessary marks of an apostle is that they had been a witness to the resurrected body of Jesus. Paul makes the same point in 1 Corinthians 15 that he can be considered an apostle because he saw the risen Jesus. Thomas did actually need to see the risen Jesus because he was one of the 12. But Thomas did not need to see Jesus to be a believer. And for a week, a whole week, Thomas was just like you and me. He didn't see it for himself, but he'd heard of it. And what's more, for us, living in these days, since the apostles, we have their written record like John gives us. So again, we come back to that purpose statement. Verse 30, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. On account of what is written of Jesus in this book, lay down your tests for God, your hoops for him, your demands, your qualifications of faith, get rid of them. It is written. Within these pages of scripture, look upon his wounds. Uh, you need not have a drawing. You need not see them for yourself in the flesh. They're recorded here in black and white in the pages of Scripture. In the pages of Scripture, we have something that can be more clear even than a painting. A painting can move us. A painting shows us something, but it's much more subjective than the black and white. And God has chosen to reveal himself to us now, in these days, in the black and white print of the pages of Scripture. And from the pages of Scripture, we can follow the example of those who first believed and confessed Christ, like Thomas did. Now, what does it mean to believe? You hear that word, and maybe you think something other than what the Bible says about it. It doesn't mean something like wishing this thing were true. It doesn't mean being positive. It doesn't mean pretending it's true, but ignoring the facts. No, believing in the Bible like this, it means believing the truthfulness of, at least at start, a proposition, history, facts, events, key is Jesus' life and death and resurrection. We must believe in the truthfulness of the proposition of his life and death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. And that means that we'll be believing then, not just in propositions, but a person. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And you must believe that personally. My Lord and my God. Believing means not believing just that he is those things or even that he's your own, but it's putting your trust in him. It is 
Not just believing that a chair can hold you, but sitting down in it, believing it to be true. And it also means beginning to praise him. Thomas's confession is not just what he needs to say in order to get salvation. It's not just the proper recognition of who Jesus is. It's personal. And it's so personal that it's an exclamation of praise. My Lord and my God. Our English Bibles are right to put an exclamation point after that. As we sang earlier to begin our service, crown him the Lord of life who triumphed over the grave and rose victorious in the strife for those he came to save. His glories now we sing who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring and lives that death may die. Crown him the Lord of love. Behold his hands and side, rich wounds, yet visible above in beauty glorified. All hail, Redeemer, hail, for thou hast died for me. Thy praise shall never, never fail throughout eternity. Every Christian can say those words believing them to be true, and worshiping God for it. If you're not a Christian, on this Easter Sunday of 2020, now is as good a time as any for you to stop disbelieving and believe. Put down your tests for God. Look at Jesus' wounds. Identify him for all that he is and all that he said he would do, all that he would be. Put your trust in him and confess him happily, joyfully, and personally. Do it today, and you will be blessed. Notice the results, verse 29, those who believe are blessed. That doesn't refer to a physical blessing so much. It's not just some sort of state of blessedness where we get some sort of holy halo around our heads like you see in Roman Catholic paintings or something. To be blessed is to be on the Lord's side. To be blessed is to be good with him. To be blessed is one day to fully join him in glory. It's to join in Life, as it says in verse 31, there is life in his name for those who believe. What kind of life? Well, John calls it elsewhere eternal life. Or as he clarifies in John 11 after the resurrection of Lazarus, even if we die, yet shall we live. There's life on the other side of death. He calls it abundant life in John 10, verse 10. Implying that it's not just later, but it's also now. Life in his name. The life of Jesus. Because of his death and resurrection, his life changes everything. And it changed Thomas. 
There is a decent amount of ancient evidence outside the Bible that our Thomas took the gospel after this and took it as far as India, where he died eventually as a martyr, being pierced through by the sword or a spear. Now, I don't know what abundant life in this life will look like for you. I don't know all that life will entail at the end of life or even tomorrow. I don't know what all COVID-19, I don't know what all that will entail. But I do know that there is a kind of transforming power in the resurrection that someone like Thomas could live for this gospel in such a way to take the gospel to a foreign land, to die there, and it would be all good. Not easy, but good, blessed. It would be life. I know what the resurrection means and all that flows from it. It's not explicit in our passage. This is stating and us reckoning with the resurrection. But elsewhere in the Bible, the resurrection of Jesus means, well, that our sins are taken care of. The payment was accepted by God the Father when Jesus died on that cross. We know because he lives. The resurrection means that death has been defeated. Jesus went through death and out of death alive. So that even if now we die as Christians, it's not really death. It's a passageway to more life, less sin, less trouble, more of God's presence. The resurrection means that Satan and all his minions have been conquered. Not fully just yet, but in principle, sure. The resurrection means that Jesus not only lives, but he reigns. He intercedes for us. He's at the right hand of the throne of God. The resurrection means that all those who are in Jesus, who believe, well, they've been raised with him to newness of life even now. The resurrection means that Jesus has given us the Holy Spirit who indwells us. The resurrection means that we can represent him boldly and courageously to the world that needs him desperately. The resurrection means that he's coming again. And when he comes again, he'll make all, all our bodies new. And therefore, the resurrection means, even now, we have no reason to fear. The resurrection means we have no reason to doubt. Now, there are many things to doubt. There are many things we cannot be certain of. But bank on this. Jesus was raised on that fateful, glorious Sunday. And things will never be the same. Believe it. Keep believing it. Christian, shake off those doubts. There's no reason to doubt our Savior 
And this is what is most important. Let's pray. Yes, Lord Jesus, we confess that you are our Lord and our God, that you died for us and you are raised. And you now live forevermore. Oh, Lord, we are blessed. We have your peace. You give us life. And we want others to join us in that confession, in that life, and even in that worship. So help us, Lord, to represent you well, not least in dealing with our doubts and dealing with our fears. May we continue to bring them to you as we walk by faith and not by sight. Help us, we pray, in your name, amen. Let us respond and to sing to believe. the 
to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me I see his wounds his hands his feet my Savior on that cursed tree his body drenched in tears they laid him down in Joseph's tomb the entrance by heavy stone Messiah still and all the
Yes, we will praise his name forevermore. We will praise his name today. It is highly unusual, even unprecedented, unless you're over a hundred or you have lived in a different part of the world at some point. It's unprecedented for Christians to not gather in person on Easter Sunday. And yet here we are. And, Lord willing, as far as we can tell, that's what we'll have to do next week again. And until the civil authorities tell us that it's wise and safe to start meeting together again. Highly unusual, unprecedented, at least in our lifetime. And yet, our God is the same. Jesus is still risen. I was asked this last week, what will I tell the church in these days of COVID-19? How will I encourage them? And I said, I will encourage them like we do every single Sunday, every single Easter, with the resurrection of Christ that transcends all of this, that one day will make all this forgotten. It's light momentary affliction compared with an eternal weight of glory which awaits us. We will see Jesus and we will shout the victory. And so we hope to see you, as it were. We hope next week, Lord, to, to meet together, to encourage each other, not to meet together in body, but in spirit and as families in our family rooms. And to trust that the Lord is in this and using it for his glory. So we hope you'll join us. We hope you'll prioritize Sunday morning as a family. Uh, we'll begin next week in Psalm 90 as we begin a 10-week series from Psalm 90 to 100. I guess that would be 11-week series. And we'd encourage you to be thinking about those psalms, be in those psalms, be meditating upon them. I think you'll see that they are timely for us and heartwarming and thought-directing. Until then, let us go in the joy of the Lord. Let's go about our business today and our celebrations today as families in God's presence with his joy because he is our Lord and our God.